Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name that was applied to your head and to your heart in the sacrament of holy baptism. And for all those who have gone through that baptismal exodus, we look back at the freedom Christ gave us, and we look forward to a life lived in hope, adopted in God's family. My brother was married in San Antonio, Texas, long time ago, about 40 years ago, at a pretty famous Lutheran church, an LCMS church called Concordia Lutheran Church. Uh, today, if you go on the uh, Catholic uh, Archdiocese website, uh, it reports that one-third of the citizens of the city of San Antonio are Roman Catholic, 812,035. So I'm thinking about 40 years ago, I bet it's probably at least 50% of San Antonio that was Roman Catholic. At my brother's ceremony, there were three Lutheran pastors that officiated, uh, myself, the bride's pastor, and my brother's pastor. All of them were LCMS Lutherans. And as I came into the sanctuary door preparing for the uh, rehearsal, um, I noticed right by the door on the wall, there was what looked like a Roman Catholic holy water container. And then I looked around at all the doors entering the sanctuary, and it's a big sanctuary. They all had the same thing. I thought about checking the sign out front to make sure I was in the right church, checking to see if it wasn't a Roman Catholic church. It was the first time I've ever been in, in my life in an LCMS church, a Lutheran church, or really any church that was not Roman Catholic that had holy water uh, at the entrances. And I believe that's still true today. Uh, so... As I thought about this, you know, it's San Antonio, Texas, a large Roman Catholic community, probably the leaders of the church thought, well, we want our Roman Catholic friends to feel a little bit comfortable, uh, and maybe they'll think about joining the Lutheran church. <laughs> I, I don't want to put the worst construction on everything. So maybe the best construction was that the leaders of the Concordia Lutheran Church in San Antonio were thinking, this is a way for them to remember their baptism. Unfortunately, because the event was long ago and because I wasn't really focused on the visitors coming to church during the service itself, I can't tell you how many people actually anointed their head with the holy water as they entered into the sanctuary. I can't tell you how many people did it when they exited either. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church or you're planning on being in a Roman Catholic church, and I know some of you are, when you go in, I want you to pay attention to how many people anoint their head with holy water or their chest uh, when they come in versus when they leave. And my assumption is it's vastly more people coming in that leave. And I, I read a, a blog um, from Father Charles Grodin, who actually, you know, the way he writes this section could be Lutheran. It's almost Lutheran. This is what he said. It's certainly most appropriate and traditional to bless ourselves with holy water upon entering the church, but there is no absolute requirement that we do so. There is also nothing that states that we cannot or should not use holy water on the way out of church. It could be used to remind us of our baptismal calling to live the gospel in the world. Amen, brother! Tonight's sermon is our baptismal exodus and the 
emphasis is indeed on the exodus. Not like Lot's wife, you know, looking back to what she was remembering she had, but remembering that you're gone. Satan no longer holds you captive. So as we revisit the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, or it's actually called the Sea of Reeds in Hebrew, um, I remind you the context. The context is this sandwich between Passover, which we know occurred from what would be our Thursday night, their Friday morning, sundown Thursday night, to the morning of what would be Friday for us. It all happened in that short time. So during that time period, you may remember that they were told to stay inside. Now, the Passover was the final of ten plagues. And we need to rewind a bit and, and say to ourselves, well, why were they even being held captive in the first place? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find out that the context is the Egyptians were afraid. I think that's really important. Because in a similar way, I believe Christians are marginalized in today's society, at least in the thinking of many people, not always overtly, usually covertly. You know, they're considered goofy, strange, backwater conservatives. But I think that the real fear is that they're afraid of our influence. And I think there's a secondary fear, that they're afraid that we will hold them captive by our own behaviors and beliefs. And maybe there's another fear, that maybe they suspect that they would lose their standing as achievers of some sort of works if they knew anything about grace. None of that is true. Think about these verses about what Christ really is about. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Galatians 5.1. And Jesus in the gospel, John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Christianity is about freedom, real freedom. So as you know, the Passover was really about freedom, and it took that tenth and final plague, which the details of which I'll just briefly revisit. Um, there was a lamb or a goat symbolizing both the sinner and saint that Jesus was. This is looking forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who also would become the world's worst sinner. So you could have a lamb or a goat, and you take it away from the flock. It had to be unblemished, the best you had. It lived in the house with you for four days. Talk about developing trust. And then you kill it. So this whole idea of betrayal and pain and grief and sadness is wrapped up in the Passover. Definitely pointing to Jesus. And you put blood at the top and the sides of the door, by the way, reminding us the point to the cross. And you did it with a paintbrush that was made of hyssop designed for cleaning. The blood cleans. I mean, how much more does God tell us about Jesus in this Old Testament miracle of the Passover? And then finally at midnight, as they're in there eating this meal and waiting for whatever God is going to do, the angel of death passes over those who have the blood of protection over the door of their homes and everyone else 
loses their firstborn son who has no protection. Finally, and we know this also took place while it was dark, Pharaoh calls for Moses and he says, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. I wonder if you remember that he said that. Pharaoh really knew where blessings came from, and they didn't come from the false gods that he had oriented himself towards. And I think our neighbors and our friends and even our enemies, if you go deep, real deep, buried somewhere in there is a desire for a blessing from something beyond what they have right now. Nobody knows how long it really took when they left Egypt to get to the Sea of Reeds, which is, again, what the Hebrew says. Uh, I'm not really sure why the translations haven't changed it, but they call it the Red Sea. And we don't even know if the Sea of Reeds was that group of briny lakes just east of Egypt, or if they were actually talking about the Red Sea, which also had a double name. But the Jewish tradition is it took them a week. If you read Exodus 12, 13, and 14, which is the time between the Passover on Friday and the Red Sea miracle, it reads like it's three days. It's hard to tell, and I don't think it's a real accurate chronology. Otherwise, God would have been more specific. But it does reference two different nights. They've already left the nighttime that they left. And they're one more night. So it could have been, indeed, what we call Easter Sunday. Hence, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We do know that God set the calendar three days after the Passover. Literally in Leviticus 23, it says the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, to be a whole new day, a whole new season. The season, the day of first fruits. And 50 days later was Pentecost, the season of first fruits, which was called Pentecost because it was 50 days from our Easter. How much more information do we need to believe that the gospel is based upon what God says? This is why Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, because he was raised on the day of first fruits. From a baptismal standpoint, this makes perfect sense. Because when you look at some of the texts about our baptism, it talks about the death, and it talks about the resurrection, and it talks about us participating in that sort of Red Sea exodus. We are right there in the middle of it. This is a verse from Colossians chapter 2, which is, by the way, my favorite chapter on baptism. These are just two verses that reference death and resurrection. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Did you hear the with him, with him, with him? He made you alive, the miracle. When Moses told the people, you sit back and let God do the work, that's what went on on Good Friday. That's what went on on the crossing of the Red Sea. 
God has taken us through the waters of our exodus with him. We are buried in his death. The old man is gone. Sins are paid for. And we are raised up a new man. Jesus died on Good Friday, and we know that's where the payment was made. But that receipt of payment had to be his resurrection. Without that receipt, there is no victory. And without the victory, all the blood that he spent on Good Friday was for naught. This is what Paul said in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Jesus had to be raised from the dead for us to enjoy not only the forgiveness of sins, but of course, living in the resurrection with him, which is what that great baptismal verse says in Colossians 2. So we go back now to the Red Sea crossing. So they were led out of Egypt, and they're headed on their way, and God does a U-turn. He says, I want you to go down here. Not long after they left town, maybe even one day. It's hard to tell. Pharaoh changes his mind, and indeed he was flighty. You go back and read about the ten plagues. He did that more than once. And he pursues the Israelites. Now, if you and I are the Israelites who have been held captive for uh, 430 years, you start thinking to yourself, how much more does this guy take? He just keeps coming after us. What will it finally take for him to stop? Ten plagues, Egypt is destroyed, is what the old high priest said. And here's something we need to remember. Satan never gets tired. Peter described him as a hungry, prowling lion who is never satisfied, seeking someone to devour all the time. This strikes us as absurd. Jesus descended into hell, not to suffer, but to announce his victory. Like Samson, he carried the gates of hell and said, you lost. What more does Satan need to leave us alone? Frankly, I think this is why some NFL teams who are completely out of the running for the playoffs, in that last game of the season, they'll defeat teams that are much better than them because they want to stick it to the man. And I think that is indeed what Satan is trying to do. He throws temptations across our path. He abuses our reputation. He tries to make us trip and fall every day. He tries to wear us down with harassment, disappointments, failures, and reminds us daily of our own sins and shortcomings. Ultimately, he really is trying to retake the captives. And it gets wearisome. But for those who are baptized, we have something that he cannot touch, the grace of Jesus. I would like you for a moment to open up your hymnal one more time to that sermon hymn, hymn 596. And we're going to read together verse 3. 596 verse 3, we'll try to read it stanza-like. But all of that was washed away, immersed and drowned forever. The water of your baptism day restored again whatever. Old Adam and his sin destroyed, and all our sinful selves employed according to our nature. 
In the baptismal service in the Lutheran agenda, it has this prayer right after the cross is placed on the forehead and upon the breast of the baptized candidate. Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood. Yet according to your great mercy, you preserved believing Noah and his family, eight persons in all. You drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, yet led your people Israel through the water on dry ground, foreshadowing this washing of your holy baptism. As Jesus said in John 3, water in the Spirit. God is always using means. I mean, let's look outside the window here. There was that means called the cross. Why not just snap your fingers and say, yeah, you're forgiven? God loves the material. He created us material and soul and spirit. And so the sacraments reflect that duality, material and spirit. They are sensory-based. They're also word-based. God's word, living and active, resurrection power, created power, is spoken at both baptism and communion. We verbally confess our faith, which the Bible says is a gift that we can even do that. We are created in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2.10 says. We see the shimmering water, and on your bulletin cover, and that picture was taken in our sanctuary 24 years ago when we did our advertisements, you'll see a cross reflected in the water by design. We feel the water cascading down upon our head. We lift up and we look out at the congregation into which we have been birthed. And we see brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we're ready to go out. We're ready to go out and be the people of God in a world possessed by Satan. But we are strong. We are adopted. We are born from above. We are justified, we are sanctified, we are empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And so when Satan assaults us and throws all this stuff at our feet, we can look back at that day and that water and those words and say, that's when I was set free. It's God's objectivity like Good Friday or Easter Sunday. It's a date on a calendar, it really happened. As we conclude, I want to take you to the last three verses of our Old Testament reading, so please turn there. And I would like you to read with me Exodus 14.30. It's the penultimate um, verse in the Old Testament reading. begins that last paragraph. And let's read it together. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God gave the Israelites the blessing of seeing their enemies dead. Your baptism is so secure, you can look at it and say, that's where Satan got the mortal wound. And yes, he can still bite, but his head has been cut off. As we read the, the verse 29, the previous verse, 
Now, let's read together verse 29 in Exodus 14. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right and to the left. Now, just for a moment, become an Israelite. You're in the middle of that incredible, miraculous trough. In front of you, you can't quite make it out, but you don't see any water. And you know Moses told you where to go. And you've never seen like this before, and so you're focused on going forward. Behind you, you've got an army and your past. You don't want to go there again. And next to you, the Bible says there are these walls of water. As we live baptismally every day, we live in that same sort of mentality. I don't want to go back to that lifestyle I had. I'm out of there. And I want to live with the people I'm with in this sanctuary, in close proximity, realizing that they're not perfect. Some of them are going too slow. Others are going pretty fast. But these are the people I'm with in my baptism. I'm baptized with them in the body of Christ. Baptism does that for us. It leaves Satan behind. It pushes forward to what's next by faith. And it gives us what I call the parameters of the paraclete. The Holy Spirit by our side, keeping us safe in a sanctuary like those walls of water. And so as I think about our baptismal exodus, I leave you with Exodus 14.31. And we read that verse together. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. They believed the Lord. They saw what he did. You guys have seen layer upon layer of Jesus in the Old Testament story. Of course, you know the story of Jesus, crucified on Good Friday, the day of Passover, raised on the day of first fruits. And I ask you these questions. Do you believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried? I think I heard you say it. Do you believe in the Holy Christian Church? I heard you say that too. Now you know what what happened after that journey. It was failure after failure after failure, and those people who all believed in God and believed in Moses at the Red Sea started dropping off like flies. I want you to know that in this day of contraction in the kingdom of God, in North America, it's growing elsewhere, that I don't want people looking back. I don't want people, oh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, we were really awesome. Yeah, we were. And those are wonderful people who built that. Some of them are still around. They're still wonderful. I want to say, this is what we've got. This is who we are. And with God, who I believe in, we're going to go forward. 
This is the journey of baptized people. We are in Christ, with Christ. We're not afraid. We're the winners, not the losers. And we're trying to find more people like Pharaoh who want to be blessed. We want to leave here tonight with a conviction, a courage, and a sense of joy that we have won and we're just going to keep winning in Christ Jesus. Hounded by Satan, whose head's been cut off and washed, buried, drowned. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which goes beyond our understanding, sandguard over our hearts and minds to keep us strong in Christ Jesus, our Lord.